0: Steve happy Monday how's it going man uh really good had a nice weekend here and
1: back out of here on Monday
0: yeah it's uh a lot going on behind the scenes we'll just put it that way (laughs) (laughs) yes Uh, it's fun times um yeah let's uh we got some listener questions one of the ones uh we've had several questions come in on rain gear and we'll get to that and kind of talk about rain gear a bit but um Even as I say that up front, I want to hear more from listeners if they have questions because we really want to get uh, some like fabrics, textile technology experts on in the future to probably take a deeper dive on rain gear. But before we get to that, a couple of things that came up, uh, not from listener questions, but just kind of recent podcasts, recent experiences. Um, One of the ones, Steve, when we were at the Portland Sportsman Show in February, we were right next to the guys from work sharp. Um, and I had been aware of their stuff and used like their, their simple little field sharpener in the field and seen some of the, the different sharpening tools that they have, like the belt, uh, options, but never worked with their stuff. And, uh, during the slow times of the show, we kind of ventured back and forth on and over there and talked with them. And I think you and I both came away separately with, uh, some different products from those guys and different experiences so you first because i think what you have is different than what i have so i'm, I'm going to make you talk about what you learned from those guys maybe it's not only about product, but about sharpening or about blades or anything like
1: that yeah yeah i didn't get an opportunity to do the full like run through tutorial like you did but um i did get their uh, their kin onion sharpener so it's a belt sharpener and it comes with um you know it's just a little Handle You lock the button down. So it turns on the wheel. And then they had a pretty cool, um, it comes with like four or five different belts. And then you can adjust. There's these kind of plastic guides that are on each side of the belt and you can adjust them from, I'll say 15 to 30 degrees or something like that. And then they have this little, uh, on the back of the packaging, they have a guide on like, all right, kitchen knives, honey knives, you know, all the, all of these different types of knives you'd use and the edge they suggest, and then how they sh- sh- like suggest you get to that edge using the different, um, uh, the different grit belts. And, uh, so I just had my kitchen knives, were, which were dull, dull, dull. Like I was about ready to buy a new set, you know? And, uh, uh I just like, oh, kitchen knives. And so I just did the process, um, it's pretty simple. I mean, it took like, maybe 10 minutes just taking my time to do the whole kitchen set like six different knives and uh, what was impressive is there a bunch of different styles of knives as well within those kitchen you know my kitchen set Uh, but it sharpened all of them equally well on the same 20 degree setting and uh, yeah they were like dangerous dangerously sharp to the point I like made a point to tell my wife like hey I sharpen the knives they're like really sharp don't let these A, you be careful around them and B, don't like leave them on the edge of the counter where the kids could touch them because they were all shaving hair sharp after that process. And then I went out and was like, oh, they did so well in the kitchen knives. I grabbed my couple different sets of hunting knives that I had and uh, all sharpened up. I mean, it's insanely well to where you're just, you know, I mean, it's just basically idiot proof to get shaving hair sharp on the knives. Um, So I was very, very impressed. The um, I think the downside to that system which is what we've kind of stumbled on um over the last few years i think i'm trying to remember um we did the the eagle hawk knives a guy out of australia and then we Mm -hmm. also got the chris reeves knives and maybe one or both of them had more of the kind of convex edge to them right like if you put a microscope on the edge and looked at it it actually is kind of rounded as it goes into the the point Mm -hmm. um And uh, you were, you know, you're the wizard out there in the field with just having a flat stone sharpener and, uh, you were struggling to like figure out how to get those back to razor sharp, which, uh, leads us into what you're probably gonna talk about.
0: Yeah. As you said, like the convex edge, and we're not here to debate the pro or con, but yeah, the convex edge basically rounds to a point versus like a true, what guys probably think of like just flat grind, flat edge to a point. Um, and then, yeah, based on the sharpener, I typically use in the field, which is a flat diamond stone. It just works much better, um, with, uh, the flat edge and the system that I wasn't aware that they had, um, but now picked one up and came home and played with a bunch of stuff is, it's just called their prison precision adjust elite. Um, and it's, so it holds your knife in a clamp and then. basically use a jig to set a specific angle and then it's fixed your knife is fixed this jig is fixed and it truly has different abrasives different grits that work essentially on a fixed rod at this point to hold that specific edge and what I did was take some of the knives I had that were convex edge and started with those rougher grits and really took some material down to begin to make them into flat grinds and flat edges which is going to make it easier, uh, easier for me to sharpen those in the field and was just super blown away by how easy it was. Because I'm not only just quote unquote sharpening a blade at this point, I'm somewhat reprofiling how that edge is built and structured. Um, and it was just crazy, crazy, crazy easy. So um, the other thing that made me think of talking about this today is we actually just, we have some of these limited edition uh, knives from Chris Reeves knives. And we're giving one away. There's actually an Instagram post up now over on our at uh, Huntback Country on Instagram. So you guys can check that out if you want to get entered. And then we'll do a giveaway, I believe, actually next month on the podcast for one. But we also want to talk with uh, Tim Reeves um, more about some of the deeper topics of knives and steels and stuff like that on a future Monday minute. So a couple things is one, if you want the like. I don't want to call it sharpening for dummies, but like this system, this precision adjust elite, because it holds your knife fixed and you're working in a very structured way, it just takes the guesswork out of finding the right angle or holding the right angle as you're sharpening. Um, I just really like it. Again, this isn't a field sharpener. This is for like at home. You're going to sharpen your knife before your hunting trip type thing and after. Um, And then also just if you guys have knife type topics and maybe that's the nerdier stuff on steels and blade shapes and all that. Um, just let us know. Cause like, as I mentioned, we're going to do some more of that on the podcast in the future as well. So we'll leave links to, uh, those items we just mentioned in the show description. Another thing that came up that I, um, we had a listener question on and worked out perfect. Cause I had just purchased one, uh, picked one up was when we did that podcast with Shane Weiser, um, he mentioned a close focus scope, adap- scope adapter for dry firing. Um, and in that conversation, I, I knew what he was talking about because it's a product I had seen before but hadn't used. And I looked it up after the fact and then just got one in here in the last week and started messing with it. But the system's called uh, DFAT, D-F-A-T, uh, the company's DST Precision. Again, I'll leave a link in the show description, but what it basically does is um, it's a device you're going to put on the end of your scope and it makes it so that you can actually focus that scope at a short distance, say like 11 feet. Mm. Um, it depends somewhat on the settings on your scope. It's going to be called it 10 to 12 feet. And then in addition to that scope adapter, essentially it's a different lens you're affixing to the end of your scope for the close focus. He has different different scenes basically. So I think most of the guys using this are more of the PRS type guys. And so there's, um, you know, different hillsides with like targets and you're finding them and, and shooting those for dry fire, but he does have some for hunting as well. So different kind of animals and just a really cool way to dry fire practice, um, dry firing something I had been doing, a decent amount in the last couple of years and do more and more and more as I get closer to hunts. But typically that's been kind of holding on a dot and just setting up different shooting positions and yes, trigger squeeze and all that stuff, which is all great, but this kind of takes it to the next level because you can kind of immerse yourself in a different scene, hold on an animal and have true close focus capabilities. One thing that uh, I haven't done yet that I'm kind of curious to do is, Pair this with looking at footage, video footage. So, pull up a hunt from YouTube or something like that. And then, you know, practice getting on the animal, waiting for that right moment, waiting for it to turn, taking different shots, different aiming points based on how the animal's presenting himself and all that different uh, scenarios you can come up with. So, it's a pretty cool tool. I've It's a, it's built well, it threads right into the objective of your scope. So he has different sizes or different models for the different scopes you have. Um, And again, I'm just starting to play with it last week, but already can see like, this is something I'll continue to use for sure. So just wanted to throw that
1: out there. I remember um, early days uh, when we had Ryan Kleckner on the podcast, uh, he was, uh, I mean, he really preached one of the best things you could do for practice was just dry firing in your living room. Um, and that's something that I've continued to do this today to this day, but, uh, yeah, this sounds pretty cool. I need to check that out.
0: And again, mix this with positions. So it's not just laying there prone and shooting. It's okay. Let me, in my opinion, a big part of the benefits of dry fire practice isn't just the trigger squeeze it's getting into position, practicing positions, um, you know, shooting from the wiser quick sticks, for example, or shooting from a tripod, if that's something you want to do sitting, kneeling, all those different things is working that in, And some of the, those charts or those scenes that he has have, um, a scale so that it's like, okay, if you're at 11 feet on, you know, with this type of zoom setting, this is going to be two MOA, right? So you can get into say, more difficult shooting position and then assess like, how stable am I? Am I able to hold on a two MOA target or not in this position? Or maybe if I shift my weight this way or do this, I realize that I become more stable and I am more effective in this position. So I think there's a ton of benefits to it and I'm kind of excited to explore it more for sure. All right. Listener question, Steve, we have had several come together and this is where we're getting into rain gear. Um, and again, this can be a much larger conversation, but I wanted to talk a little bit about this today because questions keep coming up. (laughs) This will be maybe less about like what specific rain gear to use and more about some, some ways to think about rain gear. Um, but to start with, we'll, we'll start with this context from a listener question. He said in a past episode, Steve emphasized how he felt that the first light seek rain gear was his choice for heavier duty or bomb-proof rain gear. Do you receive Steve have any strong recommendations for lightweight packable rain gear? I'm looking for rain gear that is light and packable and would be meant to keep in the pack, quote-unquote, just in case, as opposed to rain gear that you have for the days where you expect it to rain most of the day. Um, so he's talking about different hunts, different contexts. He's planning on using the seek for these really, really wet hunts. But then basically says I'm still searching for the best ultralight packable rain gear, um, and then he basically says he thinks he's found some great choices. Uh, specifically, mentioned the Arc'teryx Beta LT Hadron, um, and then he's talking about you know is that a good choice for lightweight packable just in case rain gear. I won't say anything about the Arc'teryx gear other than the specific items he's talking about. The jacket's 450 bucks. The pants are 350 bucks it's $800 worth of ring gear for quote unquote, just in case. And so the, what this question made me think of wasn't to talk about the seek versus the Hadron or when to go bomb proof, when to not, but just how do you think about ring gear? Because it is one of those items where you need it for different ways in different contexts, depending on where you're hunt, what season you're in, and then budgets all over the place. So I just want to talk a little bit about again, laying a framework for how you begin to at least evaluate rain gear. So for me, one of the things that comes in mind, this is, sounds like super obvious right up front is like, what type of exposure is expected? So on a trip, on your hunt, where you live maybe, or where you're going to, like how much rain or precipitation do you actually expect to be in and for how long, um, it seems super obvious, but that really is going to dictate how critical, not only if you have rain gear, but like the level at which that rain gear matters, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Another one, Steve, would be durability needed. So is this more open country or is it going to be more brushy and thorny? Because again, there's very, very light rain gear options, or something like the Seek is going to be much more bomb proof. You know, we really realize the value of that our very first trip to Kodiak realizing lightweight rain gear would be shredded up here, but maybe you can get away with uh, lightweight rain gear in other places. Then you have things like budget again, massive price disparity out there activity level. So do you need rain gear to truly move and hunt in, or are you just looking something where you're just going to hunker down for a certain amount of time while precipitation's happening? Then, as you mentioned, uh, this guy mentioned arcteric stuff. It's in solids. So like even thinking through color, do you need camouflage rain gear or not? Nah, does it matter what color it is? Period. Uh, with discretion is noise, right? Are you rifle hunting? Are you bow hunting? All of these factors going to come into play, and packability. Like how much does weight matter? How much does bulk matter? And all that stuff. So, again, expected exposure, required durability, budget, activity level, discretion of noise and color packability, your weight and your bulk. Those are like some of the decisions you really need to think through before you just start talking about, you know, should I buy first light or Arcterics or sitka or QU or something else? What are your thoughts, Steve, on the idea of quote unquote, just in case rain gear, because you've mentioned on the podcast yeah. several times, you just <laughs> flat out a lot
1: of times, just don't pack it. Right? Yeah. I just don't pack it. Yeah. Um, the i mean there there is a weird uh, as I'm, we kind of talked about this prior we like i want to get a fabric specialist on here someone who's very techie you know someone maybe someone who designs these jackets to talk about the difference between why like even though in a lab setting that you know x rain gear does has x amount of waterproof column and and hydrostatic uh well that's the yeah. You got the breathability and then the water the hydrostatic head on it. Right. The waterproof waterproofness of it. Um, why, even though in the lab one, they may both test equally out in the field. They're drastically different. Like in, in my experience, any of the lightweight stuff when you're in really, really wet places, just doesn't work. And I, and I don't know why. Um, so I'd, I want to get someone in here to talk about that. Cause that's really the, like if lightweight rain, rain gear, you know had the same performance as heavy rain gear it'd be a no-brainer just get light stuff but it it doesn't um so that's really the the biggest question to me is is why the difference and then that helps that would help you make some more informed decisions on which way to go um but in general you know at least my experience in Idaho I mean some places I've hunted in Wyoming get like a little bit more rain in Colorado as well um but it's we just if you're going to know if there, if it's bad enough that you need rain gear, you're going to know that in the forecast before you head in. And for me, it's, um, yeah, I just, it sucks. But as of right now, I've just got heavier duty, uh, the first light seek, um, jacket. And then I've got one of their older, like, I it was just called their boundary storm light, maybe pants. Um, and those are the two I take with me. If I know it's like, you know, hundred percent chance of rain for three days in a row, if, if I'm leaving it on a trailhead for, you know, it's September elk season and they're calling for a 40% chance of rain on Saturday, I don't bother with rain gear. And I, I know the pants I wear um, dry out incredibly quickly. So if it is two, three hours, uh, even if it's rained like right before bed, I'll just sleep in the wet pants and they'll be dry, you know, by within a couple hours inside the sleeping bag. Um, and then. Like my puffy jacket does a really good job. I've actually tested it um, in rain and the DWR on it and stuff like that holds up really, really well. So it can absolutely handle light rain for a couple hours and not get soaked through. Uh, So I've tested those things. I know how they're going to perform when it's, when it gets wet. And then, yeah, as of right now, I don't have, if it's going to be really bad weather, I don't just, I don't really trust uh, super lightweight stuff as far as rain gear goes. Cause I've just had bad experiences with, with really all the brands that I've used. Yeah. It makes me, you know, just this idea that this guy said,
0: just in case I'm not picking on him, but it made me think of how many listeners I feel like are guys out there. And this is especially true for some of the newer hunters, which, you know, we always have a combination of guys who are experienced and not over the place. And then guys who are newer, maybe newer to Western hunting, for example, and like your average guy who's going on, say an archery elk hunt, Again, that seems to pop up more and more than anything else that he has that just in case mindset, especially again, until he's built some experiences, built some confidence, built some comfort in the backcountry. And so I would just hate for guys to feel like they have to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on quote unquote, just in case rain gear, if they're going on an archery elk hunt in Idaho, Colorado, Wyoming, wherever, Montana kind of doesn't matter. It's like, yes, there's chances, yes, there's storms, but there's also ways to not have to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And so, you know, again, going back to the criteria I mentioned before, what's your budget, durability, exposure, activity, level, discretion, packability, all that stuff. I just want to throw out a couple of options because these are things that I've packed um, and again, I don't even want to say I've used them a ton because I've packed them in the past because they've been quote unquote, those just in case items. And I was, oh, I really probably don't need these the vast majority of the time. Again, context specific, especially earlier season hunts, things like that. But the Marmot precept stuff, uh, it's pretty popular with backpackers, obviously not a camouflage option, not meant for hunting. Really, really affordable, like really affordable. You can I don't even know what full price is, maybe 70 bucks a top or bottom, but you can often find this stuff like 40, 50 bucks on sale, relatively light. Um, not the quietest thing out there, not the most durable thing out there, but again, in context of just in case it's going to help keep you dry in some moisture for sure. A similar one would be like outdoor research helium again, lightweight, just in case protection. The other thing that came to mind with this was just realizing alternatives, right? So if it's, you know, I've been on plenty of hunts, especially in September archery elk where it's like, yeah, it's, we're going to get the shower or even it's going to rain for the next two hours. Are you really going to hunt through that? Or are you okay just kind of hunkering down, taking cover? And so that could be something as simple as obviously getting under actual physical cover of canopy, but then maybe you have a super lightweight, good old school poncho just to help keep you dry for these passing storms. Maybe you carry some sort of really lightweight tarp where you can just set something up quick and ride this out. So I just don't, you know, especially for the guys, again, in context who are newer, who want something quote unquote, just in case and are doing more early season hunts, you don't have to buy First, like KU Sitka, whatever, spend hundreds of dollars. Just think of budget alternatives, really, because it's just mostly, most often, in a lot of those contexts, specifically, not
1: super needed. So, yeah, i have never, as you said, poncho. Like that would has a potential to work really well. It does. Uh, yeah, I mean, you I could mean, literally just go and buy like one of those. Was it Coughlin or? There's some company that yeah. just makes generic camping gear. Like yep. you see a poncho for like $30 and it weighs five ounces. It'd probably be completely adequate. The one, like, as you were talking about that, you know, I'm like in my head thinking about, okay, it's September, that 40% chance rain turns into like a really good downpour for four hours. Uh, the benefit of having camp on my back is I'm just going to pitch my tarp, um, mm-hmm. find a good flat spot, pitch my tarp and wait it out. Cause you're not, you know, you're not hunting during those, if it's pouring that hard, all the animals are going to hunker down. They're not going to be up moving. Um, so you're not really like, you know, it's just one of those things. You're just going to wait it out till it passes anyways. Um, and, uh, and then it's the cool thing to be like, you know, you're just right there in position um, when it does clear that the animals are going to come out on the hillside, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that, that's how I would handle that. I wouldn't pack rain gear if it did happen to rain. Just pitch my tarp real quick, hang out underneath it, make some coffee, wait the storm out. And then when it passes, I get back to honey.
0: Yeah. And those, those simple tarps are great because they're super oversized. So you can even like fit under it with your pack or something if you have to. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, again, I guess to run through that really quick, expected exposure for this context, maybe some rain, maybe for a bit, like not days and days of constant downpour. So exposure is relatively low. Required durability, well, it doesn't really matter because going to activity level and exposure, exposure doesn't last that long. My activity level is going to be low. I'm not really going to be chasing animals in this because it's not going to last that long. Therefore, I don't need a ton of durability because I don't need a ton of durability. When it comes to packability, I can have some really light without a lot of bulk. Discretion in terms of noise and color also doesn't matter because once again, Mm. this is a relatively short-term window. I'm not that active. I'm probably not pursuing animals. Therefore, it doesn't matter if this rain gear is a little bit noisy or case in point, the Marmot Precip pants I've owned in the past actually still own, uh, are black. I don't care. And because of all that, my budget can be really, really low. Um, again, for that context, you can begin to see how you think through all those different categories and put a, picture together of like, okay, this makes sense. But if you flip that and it's like, take my mountain goat, that's upcoming, right? Coastal Alaska, more exposure, brushy, lower country. I need more durability, um, activity level. You know, if we have days of rain, there's potential we're hunting in it for sure. I mean, it's a mountain goat hunt in Alaska. I'm not just going to sit around forever. (laughs) Um, because I'm potentially hunting in it, maybe things like discretion of noise and color matters, but at the same time, I also have a rifle. So maybe it doesn't matter as much if I was bow hunting. Uh, but because of all those things, my budget can be a little bit higher because now I'm really needing some better rain gear. So again, context is always keen for this stuff, but hopefully that helps guys think through some choices, but yeah, if you have specific rain gear questions, uh, we'd love to dive into this con- uh, conversation further again with some uh, some experts, kind of behind the scenes. So we've got to find the yeah. right people
1: for that. we need to, to find the right person. It can't be a company because they're not going to bash their. their well, they're not going to like. Well, yeah, our lighter rain gear does suck if you're going to hunt all day in rain. Uh, yeah, they can't say that out loud. So, and most find of these companies
0: <laughs> are super aligned with the technology, right? So, yeah, First Light's aligned, you know, and has their uh, 37.5 and obviously Sitka's, uh, owned by Gore Gore-Tex. Gore-Tex. Yeah. And then you take Kuyu and they're going to have their own, um, alignments from a technology and supplier perspective. So that's one thing is like, it's more than just what camouflage pattern this is or how it's cut. It's realizing that specifically on the hunting side, for these bigger names, they're all aligned with, certain suppliers and technologies that tend to work different. So they can only really speak to theirs, but yeah, it'll be, we've got to find the right person. If you have any connections, let us know, man. (laughs) Um, all right, real quick, Steve, you got to get going. Um, let's do one quick question. It says, I have a Tika T3 light chambered in 270 Winchester and a Browning long range in seven millimeter. I'm assuming he means rim mag. He says, just curious what you guys would think would be the best option and caliber for going to Kodiak. My quick answer is whatever is shorter, lighter, but you still shoot great. Because for those deer 270s, plenty. Seven rim mags, obviously more than plenty. Just think through what are you most comfortable with and what do you mind not carrying through? thick stuff really
1: yeah i would um more specific if either one of the i mean short barrel yeah just the shorter lighter gun for getting through that brush not necessarily lighter but getting through that brush the shorter gun's gonna be better more specifically um i would which one's shooting a a tougher bullet right if you're 270 shooting like a ballistic tip and your are 7mm shooting something like a acubond or a um a barns then uh, I'd go with that more solid bullet, not for the deer, but for the bear. Um, so if you get in a situation where you are having to shoot at a bear with your rifle, um, you don't want some, a super fragile bullet. So that I, I brought my cream more, but I had a solid, uh, solid copper bullet, right. That's going to penetrate really well. So um, that'd be my leaning. And if he's got time to to you know dial in a new round or whatever uh then great pick pick which one ever you shoot better so
0: the other thing that just came to mind as well is uh if one's like stainless versus blued clean mm. stainless or yeah. you know cerakote whatever you want to throw on there but it's a legit good chance of getting wet good chance of a lot of moisture You're obviously on the ocean um there in kodiak as well so that the protection perspective, uh, protecting the surfaces and obviously internals could be a factor in choosing between the two. So cool guys As always, thank you for tuning in any questions, send those to podcast at xomountaingear.com. We'll be back on Wednesday with a full length episode. So if you
1: haven't yet hit that subscribe or follow button so that you receive those future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.